Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This episode is with Baroness Philippa Stroud. Philippa is the chief executive of the Legatum Institute, which is a London-based think tank committed to supporting people from poverty to prosperity. As Philippa's title suggests, she's not only a policy creator, but a legislator as well in the House of Lords. Philippa's background is incredibly interesting and rich, spending 17 years on the front line supporting vulnerable people, including a stint as a very young person in Hong Kong supporting ex-members of triad gangs. As I said earlier, Philippa's passion is alleviating poverty, so we talk about her current work at the Legatum Institute and also as chair of a number of important commissions. And finally, we talk about Philippa's role as a member of the House of Lords and what the role of the House of Lords is more generally, actually. So absolutely tons of interesting content in this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Philippa, a massive welcome. I am delighted to have the chance to speak with you on the Radical Reformers podcast. Lots of people listening will know exactly who you are, but for those who don't, could you just say a little bit about who you are, where you've come from? Andrew, thank you so much, and it's a total delight to be joining you on your Radical Reformers podcast. Um, just by way of background about me, I'm the CEO of the Legatum Institute, and I am a member of the House of Lords. And um, really, my whole background has been about working with people who are in poverty to um, create the pathway out of poverty and towards prosperity. And the think tank that I lead now is committed to that as well. I started my journey in Hong Kong, working with drug addicts, ex-triad members um, who were coming off drugs one by one. And I lived in a place called the Wall City, uh, which was a slum area of Hong Kong left out of the treaty between Britain and China, so it had become a gang's no man's land. And I had the privilege of working with each of the drug members one by one to see their lives completely 
turned around and and rebuilt and restored, which was an absolute uh, delight and pleasure. And uh, from there, I came back to the UK and um, started houses to care for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So um, we took in people with alcohol problems, drug problems, severe depression, uh, people with suicidal uh, tendencies. And we built four houses, a night shelter, a hostel, a rehab house and a halfway house back into the community. And the goal there was that you would never need to be on the streets. If you were doing well, you could progress. If you were doing badly, you went the other way, but you never needed to be on the streets. And then from there, I came into uh, public policy making. And I can remember the day when I started thinking, do you know, I'm caring for 50 people at any one go. But the problems that we're facing are exactly the same half a mile down the street or another mile down the street. There are another 50 people. We're just never going to get there just by building grassroots organizations, which is hugely important. But um, there needed to be something more. And I started thinking, what would happen if we get ahead of this and turn off the tap and just start seeing people's lives coming through more whole more supported, more resilient, less broken. And uh, so that's what brought me into public policy making. Wow. Um, so I, I want to talk to you in more detail about about poverty and about roots out of poverty. But just before I do, um, the bit at the start about working in Hong Kong with the ex-triad members, that, that sounds incredible. I mean, that must have been, was it very dangerous as well as challenging in the way that it would be challenging helping anybody out of that situation was there an additional element to it i think i think there was i mean i was 22 at the time and totally um passionate about being there and probably you know pretty naive as well in all honesty i learned an awful lot by being by being there um but actually i never felt unsafe i had a taxi driver once who wouldn't drive me to my home because he couldn't wouldn't believe that that's where i lived Uh, actually he dropped me quite a long way away from it which meant i then had to walk to it which actually was even more dangerous than if he'd taken me there in the first place Um, but uh, the the guys who we worked amongst were also fiercely protective of us it was a it was a strange um, relationship. They were so grateful that we were there and we were doing the work that we were doing that they were also uh, protective. And actually, the uh, triad leaders, once somebody had become an addict, they were useless to them. And therefore, they were quite happy for us to pick up what they what they no longer valued. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was actually we hugely valued these guys and could see that they had immense potential and um if only they could be given a pathway out of where they found themselves. Wow, so, okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um so uh, as you mentioned you're currently the chief executive of the Legatum Institute. Could you say a bit more about what you're focusing on there and how as an organization it makes an impact? Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Um, so the Legatum Institute, as I mentioned, was set up to create the pathway from poverty to prosperity. And we try to do that in a very um, data-led way 
we want to be quite hard-nosed about some of the solutions that we recommend. We want them to be seriously effective. So we, uh, the work that we do um, is on a, a global level with different nations, particularly emerging nations, to help them think through how they would create a, that pathway themselves, looking at how they strengthen their economies, how they strengthen their institutions, and then they, how they build their education, health, um, and living standards of a nation. And we're doing some work with Zimbabwe, with Ethiopia, uh, with the Central African Republic. Um, so just different nations that are on that pathway. But we also do work in the UK specifically on that pathway from poverty to prosperity. And um, I was in government for a number of years. And what really concerned me, um, or one of the things that concerned me about my time there, was that actually the poverty measurement of the UK was eradicated uh, for, for a number of right reasons, but not replaced. And so one of the things that we've been doing here is work around the measurement of poverty and then how you develop a poverty strategy. So the institute is really set up as an ideas hub, as a data hub to look at serious solutions to poverty and how you create that arc towards prosperity. Yeah. No, uh, I want to ask you about the Social Metrics Commission in a second. But just before that, you mentioned Ethiopia. So I... I visited Ethiopia I think 20 years ago and I it's a it's an amazing place but what I was really struck because I was quite young and unaware at that point and just to, to me it just struck me that there was no middle class really it was all very powerful seemingly wealthy at one end and then just absolute poverty at the other and I just it got me interested in thinking about how a country like that puts a system in place that can essentially create a middle class or, or a tax base or, or something like that. Exactly. And I think um, this is uh, peculiar just to Ethiopia, the numbers of nations like like this, that actually um, uh, where there are businesses, they tend to be state owned or where there is you know, even what we think of as a as a press, it tends to be uh, state owned. And it's how do you take what's at the top of a nation and ensure that it grows appropriately uh, bottom up as well? How do you do that through your education system? How do you do that through spreading the proceeds of, of growth? These are these are massive, massive challenges. Yeah. Um, so the Social Metrics Commission, then you share that and that has developed a, a metric or a series of metrics for filling that gap that you were talking about. Could you say a little bit more about the work of the commission? So um, when I again, going back to my time um, in government, um, one of the things that I became acutely aware of is government responds to things that it can measure. And the Treasury responds to things that it can can measure. And um, uh, I was really concerned that the poverty measurement that we had, it, it was easier to fight over the measurement than it was to do something about poverty. And um, I really felt that it was right to bring right and left together to not make this a political issue, 
to try and get the best thinkers from the left and the right together to develop a measure that we could all come around and agree to and that could then drive the right interventions. And um, what I found was that when I spoke to people on the left, they would say to me, oh, but poverty is about money. But it is also about things like family breakdown, failed education, addiction, debt and welfare dependency. When I spoke to people on the right, I would find them say to me, do you know what? Poverty is about family, educational failure, addiction, debt and welfare dependency. But it's also about money. And I started thinking, well, surely we can bring these two together and do something pretty special. And so the measure that we have uh, developed is a measure of the total resources available to a family. So the income, the, all the income a household has um, against the inescapable costs of that household. So things that they can't avoid paying for. So, for instance, that's their housing or if they're in work, the childcare or if they're disabled, the costs of being disabled. But then it's also looking at the persistence of that poverty and the depth of that poverty. Like it's stunning to me just how many people in this country live even 50 percent below the poverty line. And that's a number that that, that is increasing. And then we looked at things like family, um, educational levels, work history, debt levels, assets. And uh, it's been amazing how people have been able to come around this measure and actually say, this tells us so much more about people, the lived experience of those uh, who are in poverty. No, I, I think it's a really, really impressive piece of work, particularly as I think with some some of the previous measures, there was the opportunity to, I don't want to misuse the word, but to, to game the system in order just to nudge people above a certain threshold but actually, what the, the work that you're doing is much more nuanced than that and starts to look at how far from the line are they. And, can, you know, it, it paints it paints a much richer, truer picture. It's more nuanced because the world and life is more nuanced, but it certainly feels a lot more meaningful to me. But it was interesting because when we when we were doing it, we were thinking the way poverty used to be measured the only thing you could do was redistribute money through the benefit system to move people in or out of poverty. Yeah. And where that's appropriate, we need to do that. But this will also respond if an employer does the right thing by people. Yeah. This also responds if um, people with disabilities are better cared for and equipped to participate in, in the world at, at large, which goodness we should be doing in the 21st 21st century so this this also responds with childcare interventions you know there, there are so many more things that genuinely impact on the lives of people that the measure will respond to which is just really exciting for the, the real lives of, of people exactly um I, I want to turn now to just thinking about specific policy ideas so some of our listeners will be in policy development, either in central government or in in political parties as well. So um, could you give me some examples of policy ideas that you've been involved in developing and and how successfully you think that they've been implemented? Because, as you know, I'm very interested in, in actually getting things implemented in a very practical way. Yeah. So goodness me, there's such a big difference between coming up with policy ideas and then and then implementing them. So um, prior to 2010, 
I was the CEO of the Centre for Social Justice and there I had the privilege of guiding David Cameron's social justice policy group work, which was the development of a lot of um, what went on to be his, his social policy. And we were looking at the five pathways to poverty. We were looking at issues of family, issues of education, issues of mental health and addiction and a number of others. And we developed uh, a whole policy portfolio around each each of those um, pathways. Um, I then had the privilege of working um, on the modern day slavery agenda and, um, and actually on a childcare agenda when I was in government as well. But the biggest area that I worked on was welfare reform. Um, I was a special advisor for Ian Duncan Smith um, and then um, in number 10 for the PM um, as well. And that was, um, that was just a huge challenge. When we had been working on welfare reform um, outside government prior to 2010, we had been looking at how you incentivise people to, to move into work and then to progress in work. Uh, nothing prepared us for implementing those policies in a time when there was serious money being taken out of the welfare uh, budgets. So I was involved in the development of universal credit, um, which was probably the biggest reform to welfare of a generation. Um, when When you think about implementation and actually taking something from concept to reality, um, it's absolutely huge. If you think we started, we started developing the policy in 2008. We came into government in 2010. They started. They made the decisions. I think by about 2011 that we were going to do this, and we're 2021 now, and it's only 10 years later that people are saying this reform has succeeded. Yeah. Um, and it succeeded because it took huge pressure during the pandemic and people suddenly realised that had that not been in place and people had needed to go to six different places to claim their benefit in person during a global pandemic, uh, people suddenly realised this was this was a successful reform. But all the battles, that's 10 years of having of having fought over a major change. Just you asked about some of the lessons of implementation. I can remember the first SRO uh, walking in to meet us. Sorry, SRO, just for people. Officer, sorry, yeah. um, in government, coming in and, and meeting us. And uh, we had about a 10-minute conversation. And then at the end of it, I said, oh, would you like me to explain how universal credit works in, in our minds? Because it's just a policy. And he said, no, 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 I've got it. Uh, we're off to build. And I was thinking, oh, my word, how can you, how can you be off to build something that, <laughs> that when we're probably the people in the room, well, we are the people in the room who created the concept of this, and we've never even talked about policy intent. Um, another uh, lesson about implementation is the 
that emergency budget of 2010 and then further ones in 2011 and 12 put in motion reforms to every single benefit pretty much in the DWP at the same time, at the same time as bringing in huge, a huge new reform, universal credit. I mean, no businessman would ever do that to their business. They would sit down and say, if we are going to implement this massive change, we need everything else stable. And um, this will be our number one focus. But the reforms to disability, to sickness, to pensions, you name it, the benefit lines, because because of savings that were needed from these benefits. Um, A third lesson that I would say is that if you're bringing in something new, bring it in in strength, whereas universal credit is just a delivery mechanism, but the benefits that went into it were being cut, the legacy benefits that were going into it, and therefore got associated with cuts to welfare. If you're bringing in a change that's as big as this, it's got to be positive. So there are just, I mean, I could go on, Andrew. No, I, it's very, it's, it's very, very interesting. I mean, there's... Top of my head, the lessons that we were learning. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it, it's really interesting, and, and I'm not sure that, you know, government is vast, but I'm not sure that the lessons on successful implementation and focus and realistic speed are, are, are always learned because it's such a big, you know, I'm thinking of the NHS IT system, which many years ago, you know, that was a big bang attempt that didn't work. But I, I think the importance of having a real focus and not trying to do too many things at once is important. But also, um, I've been reading quite recently about the power of people who get things done successfully don't fool themselves into thinking they can do everything immediately. It's about it's about compounding over over a, a period of time, making incremental changes, making sure that they're locked in. And actually, the important thing is to look back five years down the line and say, wow, look at how far we've come, rather than getting to the five-year point and the whole thing having blown up two years earlier. And I'm not being specific about anything here. I'm not talking about universal credit, just talking generally. You know, politicians will, will make promises and will say that things will be done and civil servants are asked to deliver on that. And quite often, as you say, that's not how you would run a business. No. So. Do you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I've always, I've pretty much always founded the organisations that I have led and therefore have been with them for a long period of, of time. And um, the person who's now responsible was in the department at the time that we were there and is still there now. And I think that tells you that is really key to why this has been. Someone has been prepared to put their name on the block and be accountable and say, I'm going to stay in this role um, and I'm going to see it through over the long haul. And it does take people to say, no, I'm, I'm actually not going to move on. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to see this through, even if my name's never known or I don't get that promotion or whatever. That's a really good point because through not the individual's civil servant's fault, but that does not happen in the civil service. No. It is, it, it, in order to progress, you need to move. You need to move around. And, you know, I've worked on a number of large central government programs and the entire team is usually different at the end than it was at the start and that's 
and to some extent that's fine, but usually the the minister's not the same either. No. Um, so often, and this is quite weird, but often us as the external consultancy are often the only consistent <laughs> bit through it, which yeah. um, has happened a couple of times. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? And yeah. um, uh, I, I. I would say often for something to succeed, it needs that level of commitment and consistency because yeah. you hold yourself accountable for the decisions that you're making because you know that it's going to be on your watch. You yeah, know? Exactly, exactly. So a, a lot of what we're, we're talking about here links to my next question, which you know I'm very interested both professionally and just uh, intellectually, personally, in how you build effective bridges between central and local government. So be really interested to hear in, in your experience what makes for a good connection, because a lot of what you're talking about around universal credit, that had to be implemented locally. Yeah. And, you know, so how, how did that happen? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I only saw the kind of political side of yeah of this and I know that there were probably civil servants who actually were the interface between local government and central government who could probably speak more to this but I know that every time we went out into a job centre every time we we actually sat down and we listened and we talked with people who were frontline um, we came back with just so uh, much more clarity as yeah what was needed uh, from us centrally uh, for something to be effective. And I think the moment that central government thinks that they're going to tell local government what is happening, and um, and then the moment local government thinks it's going to resist what central government is saying, I think those are the, the tricky moments. Clarity of communication so that you get on the same page, you understand policy intent, but you also receive the wisdom from those who are really working with yeah. the client group. and. You can then brainstorm through, well, what, what was the policy intent here? Well, actually, it would be better done like this then. If, if that's what you're trying to achieve, let's do it, let's do it slightly yeah. differently on, on the front line. I think that constant, um, circular conversation between local to yeah. central and where you really respect and value, uh, what each other is, is saying is, yeah. is hugely important. So it's, it's very interesting because, um, Local government now, councils, council leaders, even council chief executives are, are being much more assertive with, yeah. I think there's far less deference if, if there, if there was yeah. an element of it that is certainly disappearing. But in, in conversations I'm having with local government leaders and in fact central government leaders as well, whilst the politicians have been at each other, uh, publicly, actually behind the scenes, the working relationship between council officers and civil servants during the pandemic, a lot of people have reported that they found it really good and really productive. And another quick point I would make is that some of the best central government civil servants that I've worked with have spent time working in local government yeah. and actually understand that connection and understand how local government works and how and how decisions are made and I think that's so important. I I know that um just I, I spent um seventeen years running frontline organizations before I came into into politics. And granted it wasn't local government, but it meant that 
I had really, really worked day after day after day after day with people who were very uh, vulnerable. It meant that when I came into central government, I kind of instinctively knew when something wasn't going to work. You know, you just kind of say, oh, please don't do that. That's just that just isn't going to deliver what you're wanting it to to deliver because i in my mind i had the faces of hundreds of people that i had that i had worked with and i think that's what local government has they they work front line yeah. with with people and they kind of have this instinctive sense of you know well, if that's what you're trying to do th- that way just isn't going to achieve yeah. it if you listen to me i'll tell you what really will work yeah. and be effective and i think I think that's what you're looking for, really. Exactly. I I completely agree. Um, So I want to ask you about the House of Lords now. So the very existence of the House of Lords and how appointments are made uh, is quite controversial, with some people arguing that it lacks democratic accountability, but others arguing equally as strongly that this is what makes it a much more thoughtful and considered legislative body. So what's your role on... Uh, the House of Lords and in good policy making in general, because I'm just I'm really glad that you talked about your early experience here, because I'm not sure whether people would imagine that somebody with such frontline experience as you is the sort of person who ends up in in the House of Lords. I think for a lot of people, it's it feels even more distant than Parliament. But actually, for somebody like you, you're much closer to the front line than potentially a lot of the MPs. The MPs, I think, get a get a hard rap because actually, because they have constituents, they're actually very close. And then if they if they really do their surgery as well, they are very very close to to the front line. But no, I I, I can be sorry. I I do I do agree with that. I'm just sort of saying in in people's in, in public people's perception, perhaps. Yeah. 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 You asked what the role of the House of Lords is in is in in policy making. Actually, not so much in policy making, um, because by the time something gets to the House of Lords, it's already in a in a bill format. But what we can do is the House is really full of experts who yeah. can scrutinise the legislation and see whether or not it will or won't. Work and I can remember when we were taking welfare reform bills through, we knew pretty much that the Commons would send it through, pretty much unchanged. You know, you, you're whipped, you've got a majority, you'll get your legislation through. But the House of Lords is where there's time to really scrutinise each clause of a bill and to challenge and say that will that really work. Um, and it's often where the detailed work of the house happens. And because you have uh, people who are experts, um, I mean, I'm always stunned that you'd be surprised that there are a lot more people like me in the house than you would think. Um, so, you know, you've got nurses and doctors and people who have kind of worked with charities. You've got you've got people who've, whose kids have been killed in gang warfare. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. You've, what an extraordinary um, um, collection of, of, of people on our benches. We've got a Baroness Newlove, whose his husband was kicked to death outside her house and she became the victims commissioner. You know, it is really extraordinary who you who you do have on, on the benches um, 
in in the house and and people who are prepared to give the time to actually say that this is this clause isn't going to work as it is but we'll lay an amendment and yeah. what do you think about it we think it would work better like this and i think that is where the house is 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 really good there are also various committees that yeah. uh, can invite people to give evidence and things what's there is that always associated with legislation or do those have other purposes as well no, you're absolutely right. They can, um, the committees can call witnesses and they can decide what their work program is going to be. And if they're concerned about an area, um, they think um, something isn't happening the way that it, it should be. So, for instance, um, there are select committees, uh, for instance, on the DWP on work and pensions, and they can they can choose their own program of work and they can scrutinise things and they can call for evidence. And I think that is that's where a lot of the very serious work of the house yeah. plays. And how does that work feed back into the policy making machine in government? So those reports do go to the government departments and then the government departments have to respond to them clause by clause. Right. And I think that's always really fascinating to see um a a select committee make recommendations and then the government having to choose which elements it's going to say yes to and yeah. then if it chooses not to it has to give a reason as to why why not and i think they can be very very challenging and i know that for instance the work and pension select committee recommended that the social metrics commission measure of poverty be used by the government for which i was incredibly supportive <laughs> yes of course of course so um just Looking ahead now, so we've obviously all had a really tough 18 months, but the pandemic has definitely exposed some of the imbalances in society. So what are the key challenges which lie ahead for us as a country and what are the policy areas which need most attention? You've obviously talked about about poverty, but that's um, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I mean, there's a huge amount. Some people... We talk about, don't we, a, a pandemic of two halves, in effect. So some people's lives, um, their children may well have even been better educated during the pandemic. They may have uh, increased their savings during the pandemic. They were able to have a better quality of family life during the pandemic. But then on the other hand, you have children who have just gone missing from yeah. any classroom register they haven't been visible uh, to teachers uh, we know that domestic abuse has increased we know that the mental health of young people has plummeted in in many areas and this is going to need serious rebuilding and i i'm i'm not entirely sure that we are having the conversations even yet that yeah. will lead us to increasing the resilience of our young people and um, really helping our, our young people catch back back up again. You know, we talk about a levelling up agenda. We've just published a, a UK prosperity index, which actually shows yeah. we're doing quite well for things like infrastructure. And that tends to be how the government thinks about levelling levelling up. But actually where we do need to level up is things like the skills agenda, the mental health of our young people, the family stability and social capital of our of our nation. Um, so there are some some very real challenges, I think, ahead 
ahead for us. I think you you mentioned mental health there, particularly in young people. One of my earlier podcasts was with Jane Lewington, who's the chief executive of an organisation called Navigo. The, that is the NHS commissioned mental health provider in and around Grimsby. And her answer to my question about how have we seen the worst of it is that no, the mental health aftermath of COVID will be a, a couple of years in the making. And we just don't know what we don't know at the minute, which is really frightening. We've, I mean, we've seen, um, I think the Times covered this actually, like a dramatic increase of tics and Tourette syndrome among yeah. young people. Um, and Great Ormond Street has been brilliant, I think, at, at picking some of that up and working with young people. But, you know, the, the increase in self-harm amongst young people as well and eating disorders amongst young girls these are things that you know they're they're difficult to get right once they've gone wrong they're much easier to prevent them going wrong in the in the first place Uh, we have amazing young people in this country and um uh, i my hope and aspiration is that with the right support and the right care they will know that they have um an outstanding future ahead of them as well yes um, so as a final question, uh, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise or think tank who wants to make the sort of impact that you've made? Oh, Andrew, um, all the way through um, my career, I've tried to remain as connected as possible to uh, to people in communities. And I think a minute that you go into policy making and you go into government or think tanks and you almost enter the ivory castle but it can be and you become um, severed from your own place within a community and your um, own connection with people who are not part of that world I think that's when uh, policy making hits the buffers Remaining as integrated and connected with your own local community and um, people who use the NHS or go to a job centre or use public transport or, you know, these your own experiences um, are so important and, and your own connection is just so important. So the piece of advice I would I would give is is never, ever, never, ever think that Westminster or the local council Yes, no, I think that is a wonderful piece of advice. And uh, I know the really good, the really good council chief executives that that I know, and the really good chief executives of large charities and social enterprises spend time on the front line. One of my previous interviewees, Andrew Burnell, who is the chief executive of the whole city healthcare partnership, which is a large community health care provider during the pandemic he was he he's a qualified nurse he was in his full gear you know doing uh vaccinations you know that that was where he was and that gave him his, his connection and i think it's a very important point for people involved in policy making i think in particular because having operated in that environment for a while myself i know how easy it is to get drawn into the politics rather than the policy and actually become concerned about what wins the next day's headline rather than what delivers 
the best outcome and it takes real resilience and determination to resist that need so I think it is a really really important point so thank you for that just going to say I think your point about implementation and um, policy making was so right as well you know oftentimes people don't want a new policy they just want what exists to work well and to be effective so Yeah. yeah yeah so Philippa thank you for your time a total pleasure Andrew thank you I have to say I really enjoyed that this is the first of a number of interviews that are going to be more policy orientated. So um, as well as hearing from leaders who are delivering on the front line, I want to bring the perspective of policymakers as well. As all of you will recognize, there is a lot of talk about leveling up. And what's really important is that when we think of leveling up, it's not just about new roads, new railway stations, new physical infrastructure. Leveling up is all about people as well. And in order to measure whether leveling up is working, we need a proper poverty measure. And I think that's why the work of the Social Metrics Commission was so important. A lot of councils across the country will have reducing inequality as a core part of their corporate plan. Well, in my mind, reducing inequality and alleviating poverty are two sides of the same coin. It's not just about money in the bank. It is about preparing for the future, getting the right skills, having the right work opportunities. What about childcare? What about supporting people with disabilities? So it is very much about reducing inequality as well. I find the discussion about universal credit and the development of that policy over many, many years to be fascinating. And I think one of Philippa's key insights was that point about the challenge of introducing such a big change to the benefit system whilst also implementing austerity measures and the fact that that made the two things inextricably linked and made it 10 times more challenging. I think the lesson there for policymakers is to always consider the context when implementing a new and radical policy. And then finally, I think Philippa's words on local government were very important and that appreciation of the importance of having that effective bridge between central policymaking and local government. Local government, as Philippa said, are the people who understand local communities. They understand the people they serve better than anyone. So for successful policymaking and certainly implementation, that effective bridge between central and local government is all important. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you never miss a future episode.